How is everybody? Good, good, good. Hey, we've been working through the, uh, the Gospel of John for, for quite a while now, and um, we are in chapter 19 this week. If you weren't here last week, we are getting into, as we've been doing this for, gosh, I don't know how many months we've been doing it now, is we've been getting into this, we are, we are kind of getting to the, the climax of the story, the crescendo of the story, um, the, the, the kind of the highest part of the drama. That's basically where we're at in the story. If you weren't here last week, in chapter 18, we talked about the fact that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was with his uh, 11 of his 12 closest friends, right, his disciples. He gets arrested. He gets taken away. He gets falsely accused and falsely tried in front of the Jewish court, which was kind of thrown together at an improper time. And they then took him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor. He stood before Pilate, and um, Pilate didn't really, really didn't know what to do with this guy, Jesus. And we'll pick up on a little bit of that today. If you weren't here last week, though, there was different characters we were kind of introduced to. Some of them we've heard of before, like, like Peter. But we were introduced to a guy named Malchus, who was a soldier that had his ear cut off. And we were introduced to a guy named Honest, who was the chief priest at the time, who was, you know, had a lot of uh, family favorites and was kind of a crooked businessman, if you will, and was very religiously connected. And we were introduced to, uh, to Pilate, who I think is one of the most fascinating characters in the entire Bible. And we'll talk about him a little bit more today. What we talked about last week, though, is in these people that we wouldn't typically think we would associate with, um, we see similarities between how they responded to Jesus and how we sometimes respond to Jesus. But the conclusion we came to was this, is that when one has an encounter with Christ, right? When one comes to a knowledge of Jesus, we have to make a decision on who he is to us. There's no room for ambiguity. We have to come to a conclusion, right? This week, we're gonna talk about this. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know exactly how I'm gonna end this lesson today, but my goal is this. My goal is to talk about the enormity and the weight of the cross. The fact that Jesus Christ was viciously killed, hung on a cross for nine hours. And I just want us to, before we leave this room today, just to reach a point to where we can think about that for a second, right? We live in a day and age where church has become so polished and commercialized and fluffy and soft, and we forget that our faith is built upon a cross that was covered in blood and covered for our sins, things that we have done wrong. And so sometimes uh, it's good for the church to be super uplifting and positive and for us to leave, you know, high-fiving and hugging each other. And other times in church, I think we need to take time to be still. And I think sometimes we need to just really meditate on the fact that Jesus has sacrificed much for us, okay? And that's hopefully the conclusion we're gonna kind of come to today. So, I'm going to read chapter 19 to you today. If you have a Bible with you, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the first four books of the New Testament. We're in the fourth one, the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 19. Uh, you should have a notes handout in front of you. It's got virtually everything I'm going to say in it. If you have a smartphone, I think everyone except for six people on planet Earth do, but if you have a smartphone, um, if you have the Bible app, the Version app, all of it's on there for you, the translation and the, the notes that, that uh, I'm going to be teaching from and we should be good to go, okay? This first section's a little, little lengthy, so bear with me. But we are right in the middle of Jesus being tried and um, Pilate, the Roman governor, kind of finding out what he needs to do with this Jesus character, okay? So let me pray, and uh, we'll see the Lord takes us, okay? <sighs> Father, Lord, I love you so much. 
God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. God, I pray that you keep your hand on everyone in this room, Lord. I pray, God, that as we talk about the most important of all subjects, God, the weightiest of all subjects, the most uh, dramatic of all subjects, God, I pray, Lord, that we can just momentarily, Lord, just, just really feel the density of this, the weight of this, the severity of what we're talking about, God. Lord, we pray that you bless every church in our community. Father, don't, look at, don't, don't let us ever look at those churches as competition, but as brothers and sisters of Christ advancing your kingdom. Lord, bless all the nonprofits in our town, God. And just keep your hand on us, Lord, and lead us and guide us and direct us today. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your name that we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read uh, quite, a, quite a chunk here at the beginning, and then I'll do my best to break it down, okay? Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and threw a purple robe around him. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him outside to you, and I want to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple police saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he must die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From the moment Pilate, from that moment, Pilate made every effort to release Jesus. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's bench in a place called the stone pavement. And it was for the preparation of the Passover, and it was about six in the morning. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. So then because of them, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, if you don't know anything about crucifixion, crucifixion wasn't just a physical torment, it was an emotional and social torment. It actually started off with humiliation. They would take the victims, strip them down either completely naked or to almost uh, being completely naked, and they would take them, chain them to a flogging post, a whipping post, 
and they would make fun of them, they would humiliate them, and they would take an instrument called the cat of nine tails, which was a whip about two feet long with an extensions off of it, nine extensions, and on the end of these extensions would be parts of bone, parts of metal, and parts of, of, of different things like rocks and things like that that were sharpened. So when the victim was struck in the back, the material would stick into the flesh, and when they pulled it, it would rip off huge chunks of skin. So by the time someone was flogged with a cat of nine tails, they would literally have no skin on their back. Nerves exposed, muscle tissue exposed, sometimes ribs exposed. It would be very, very awful. So here's the thing about sin. Wherever there is sin, there is humiliation, there is shame, there is guilt, and there is brutality. These are trademarks of sin. Just look at the world around us. And the Romans had made this this. Uh, this excruciating thing, the crucifixion, they had made it into an art form. In fact, we get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion, and it came from how bad this punishment was. So Pilate didn't have any desire to kill Jesus. He wanted out of this, right? So Pilate never intended to kill him, but what he intended to do was to have him beaten so severely that he could present them in front of the Jews in the hopes that they would have a little bit of compassion and let him go. So Jesus went through two rounds of beatings. I cannot pronounce these words, so I'm not going to try. But after the humiliation and the beating of a victim in Roman culture, they would present the victim to the crowd kind of for one last round of humiliation and shame. They would present this beaten individual, and then they would let them go, right? So at this point, that's what he hoped to do. Beat him severely, show him to the crowd. The crowd would have mercy, and they could be done with it. But that's not the way it worked, right? So Pilate thought that this gory presentation, for most of us, even as cold-blooded as some of us can be, would see that and be like, okay, we've had enough. But the bloodthirsty crowd looked at Jesus, beaten and bloodied and probably unrecognizable, and they said, crucify him, crucify him. And the reason why they wanted him crucified was from Leviticus 24, 16. They said, crucify him because we have a law, and this man says that he is the Son of God, and he must be killed. Now, when Pilate heard that, he wasn't aware that they were claiming that this was God, right? And so when Pilate heard this piece of news, he says, says in the Bible, he was more afraid than ever. Why? Did Pilate think there was more to this man than him just being a human? Was he afraid of what was going to happen if Caesar found out about this debacle? Yes, he probably was. Was he afraid a little bit of the mob? He was. But what I think in my heart, I believe that Pilate sensed that this was not just a mere mortal. So he goes to him and he says, where are you from? And we think geographically on planet earth, I think Pilate was taking it a little bit bigger. He was saying, where are you from? What has brought you here? Here's the thing about Pilate though. Do I think he feared Jesus? Yes, I think he did. Do I think that he thought Jesus was more than just a man? I do. But the fear of mankind was greater than Pilate's fear of God. And that's most of our problems as well, is we, too, we worry too much about what people think about us and not what God thinks about us. Nonetheless, though, there was a sense of urgency in the Roman senator, right, in the Roman governor. And so Pilate goes, has another conversation with Jesus, and as Jesus remained quiet, he said nothing, right? Pilate looks at him and he says, he says, man, listen, I have the power to let you go and I have the power to kill you. Jesus looks back at him 
And he says, the only power you have has been given to you from above. In essence, Jesus is saying, the only power you have is the power I gave you. That's the only authority you have. Now imagine in Pilate's mind as he hears this, already having this unsettling feeling inside of him. He strategizes and he tries to think of everything imaginable to get Jesus off the hook. He's going to try everything he can to fix the situation to the best of his ability. So we see out of Pilate that he does have some sense of justice, right? There's a small fraction of goodness, if you will, somewhere deep inside of Pilate. And as he frantically tries to get Jesus off the hook, the vicious mob kind of take a low blow, right? They take another stab that really would have got to the heart of Pilate's fear. And what they said was this. They said, anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And what this was, was this is a passive aggressive attack. This was a veiled threat at Pilate. See, if Pilate let Jesus go, the Jewish leaders would send notice to Rome. And what Pilate was thinking is, if I mess this whole situation up, and if I let someone rise up and say he's a king against Caesar, the next person who's going to be crucified is me. And so Pilate was afraid that he would be the next one to be executed. So here's what happened. Pilate gets backed into a corner. He's afraid. He's confused. He's bewildered and amazed by this uh, this articulate and, and seemingly just unusual prophet that's in front of him. He's terrified that the Roman emperor may do something against him. And with all this pressure against him, Pilate caves in. And at this point, the Jews have gone completely insane. They're now shouting, we have no other king but Caesar, right? No other king but Caesar. And they have gone completely off the deep end. So they take Jesus and Pilate lets him go to the Jewish council and to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Therefore, they took Jesus away. Carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side. With Jesus in the middle, Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross, and the inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. They said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's, let, uh, let's cast lots for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. So John, if you compare John's writing of the crucifixion to the other, uh, other three gospels, Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's, 
He does not go into as much detail about the agony of the cross as some of the author, uh, other authors. The reason why John didn't go into the agony and more description about the crucifixion is because John's audience was Greeks and Romans, and they would have all known what crucifixion meant. You didn't have to go into the details about crucifixion. If you just walked up to someone and said, my best friend was crucified, they would say, oh, that's terrible. That is the worst way that someone could ever go. And so he didn't have to go into a description about that. The other thing, John didn't want to focus on the event as much as he wanted to focus on the one who was going through the event. He did make a lot of careful notes about the division of Jesus' clothes, the gambling for his tunic, the thieves that were on each side of him, later on the knees that will be broken of the thieves, things like that. And the reason why John went into those details is are those details are the ones that confirmed the Old Testament Scripture. So John went over these details because it proved that Jesus was the Savior because you could go back into the book of Isaiah, into the book of Zechariah, other books like that, and you could see the proof. That's why he wanted to focus on that. So Jesus was crucified on a hill called the Skull Place or Golgotha in Hebrew. And what he did, Jesus was placed in the middle of four Roman soldiers, two in the front, two in the back. They would walk on all corners of him as he took this long road to the hill Golgotha. They would carry up a sign that, that had his crime listed on it. And his crime was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, right? That's kind of what they walked behind him with. Now, this is one of those minors, and you guys can argue about it amongst yourself or whatever you want to do, but more than likely, he didn't carry the entire cross. That would have probably been physically impossible, especially after the beating he received. More than likely, he carried the cross beam of the cross, right? The part that is horizontal, not vertical. And this still would have been a big deal, even for a healthy, strong man to put 100 pounds on his back, let alone the fact that he'd been beaten for almost two days, right? And so he's carrying this, this uh, huge cross beam on his back, and customarily, they would lead people the longest way possible to the execution site. And the reason they did that is they wanted to parade them through the town and make a huge humiliating spectacle of it. And so the path that Jesus took is called the Via Della Rosa. If you ever go to uh, Jerusalem, that's what it's called. And as Jesus came to the hill where he was crucified, they laid the cross beam upon the crossbar they would nail his wrists, if you feel your wrist between these two bones in your arm, they would go between these two bones, and then they would take his feet, put them one on top of the other, give him enough slack in his knees to push up and down, and they would go between the bones of your feet and nail his feet together on the cross. And so as Jesus was nailed to this hunk of wood, he hung there for nine hours. And every time he would have to take a breath, for nine hours, he would have to shove his back that had exposed nerves and muscle tissue and bone, right, because all the flesh was ripped away. He would have to run that up the back of the cross and back down every single time he would have to take a breath, every single time. Not only was, again, the physical torment bad, but they thought they would keep going with the disgrace and they put him between two common thieves. Now, little did they know that this also fulfilled Scripture. Not only did it fulfill scripture that was written 700 plus years before Jesus was born, we also get one of the greatest stories of grace in the entire Bible. If you go into the other gospels, one of the thieves starts making fun of, starts mocking Jesus, right? Starts making fun of the fact that he claims that he's the savior. The other one, 
tells this one to be quiet, looks at Jesus, and he says, Lord, remember me as you go into your kingdom. And maybe some of the most beautiful words, most beautiful depiction in the entire Bible, Jesus looks at a thief that is on a cross for crimes that he committed. He deserved to be punished, right? And Jesus looks at him, and he says, I assure you this day you will be with me in paradise looks at this. And what we see is this, that the cross can go to any depths. It can go to people who are at the end of their life and who deserve punishment. And grace extends itself all the way to that point. And so John mentions that they divided Jesus's clothes, right? There's four soldiers. They divided his clothes into four parts as he hung. But there was one thing, a tunic, almost would have been like an infinity scarf almost, right? It was one piece of cloth seamlessly put together. They didn't want to get rid of, they didn't want to tie, uh, uh, tear this apart and divide this. So they thought they would gamble for this one piece. Guys, this would have been the equivalent of someone extremely famous who, who had just died and you want a piece of memorabilia. So they gambled for this one piece of clothing. Now, just this couple of small acts here about dividing the clothes fulfilled over 20 Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament also says that the high priest's garment can never be torn, it can never be ripped. And when we studied the book of Hebrews, we find out that Jesus is the high priest. He's not a high priest, he is the high priest. And look at how his garment was not torn. And so he is God. He is the high priest, but the people had not experienced his power yet. Next part. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Here's what's interesting, guys. The week prior to this, the same week that Jesus was crucified, he rolled into town at the beginning of the, the, the Passover festival, and they estimate that literally millions of people were waiting for Jesus. They laid down palm branches. They called him their king. There was this huge crowd. But when it got ugly, not only were the crowds not there, but even 11 of his 12 disciples were not there. So at the foot of the cross, there was just a small group of loyal people that were there for Jesus. Now, some wonder why Jesus' dad wasn't there. More than likely, Joseph had already passed away. He would have been a little bit older than Mary, and chances are something happened to him, and he didn't live to this time. So at the foot of the cross, there was John who wrote this book of the Bible. There was Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who I have looked into this guy and can find nothing on him, right? But he's pretty famous now. He's in the Bible. And Mary Magdalene. They were all at the foot of the cross. Here's what else is interesting. 
Um, and if you talk to a Catholic, they would disagree with you on this. And that doesn't mean they're bad people. They just don't agree with this. The Catholics don't believe that Mary had any more children after Jesus. The Bible says that she did. And so Jesus had half-sisters and half-brothers, and they were also not at the cross, leading us to believe that they didn't think Jesus was anything special. In fact, maybe they didn't like him. Interestingly enough, a couple of his half-brothers, James, who wrote the book of James, and Jude became huge leaders in the Christian movement, James, in the city of Jerusalem, in that same town. But they were not there at the foot of the cross. So as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looks down, he sees his mother, and he says, Mom, this is your son. Talking about John, that's right there. And he looks at John, and he says, John, this is your mom now. Basically saying, take care of my mother. And what we see is this. We see that John must have been pretty important to Jesus. I mean, he calls himself the loved one, right? So he must have been pretty important to Jesus, enough that he would trust him to take care of, her, uh, of his mother. The other thing we see is this. Jesus in this act is honoring one of the Ten Commandments that we often forget about to honor our father and mother. And he's making sure that his mother is taken care of. And at this point, all business is finished. Jesus' knowledge that everything he set out to do has been completed. It shows that he is aware that every single step he had to take, everything that led him to this point of immense pain, humiliation, and soon impending death, right? That everything he did, he was okay with that because it was all in the alignment with God's will. And so he was okay with that. And it, this awareness led him to believe that it is finished, it is completed. He was exactly where he needed to be. And towards the end of his life, in just the last couple of minutes of his life, he kind of gives in, if you will, and he says, I'm thirsty. This can almost be interpreted as, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm ready to go. It's probably a reference to Psalm 69. Jesus had been tired the whole time, beaten the whole time, but now we kind of see the human side of Jesus. He confesses it. I'm worn out, I'm tired, I'm thirsty. And so what they do, is they take some vinegar, they put it on a sponge, and this was not a, a, a kind thing to do, this was them further torturing him, and they took a hyssop branch, stuck the sponge that was soaked in vinegar on this hyssop branch, extended it towards his mouth, he tasted the vinegar and probably recoiled, and this is eventually when he says, it's finished. Okay, interesting fact, the kind of branch that they used to extend that to him is the same exact kind of branch that they would have smeared the blood over their houses when the angel of death passed over. Same kind of branch. And so he feels this, and this is not to help him. In fact, they would often give this kind of vinegar to people on the cross because it would constrict the, the, the muscles in their throat and they couldn't scream out in agony. So it's just basically further torture, more torture. And so Jesus says, it's finished. This refers not only to his life, not only to his ministry and what he needed to do in the 33 and a half years that he was on planet earth. This also signifies when he said it is finished, he's saying the bridge has been built between God and man. Everything that I set out to do to connect again the creator and the creation is done. I have completed this, it is finished. And when you're reading this story, Non-believers may look at this and say, this is just a man who is crying out because his suffering was finally done. Or they could say that he was a revolutionary political figure that was now conceding that he had lost. But we as Christians know that it's not those things. It was a shout of victory because God has triumphed through the death of his son.
And since it was preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a special day, right? You don't want corpses on trees on a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one they have pierced. This is pretty sadistic and twisted, right? So the same Jewish religious leaders who wanted this man viciously beaten and murdered are the same ones who said, hey, can we go ahead and kill him quickly so we don't have to look at him during our party, right? We don't have to look out the window while we're eating dinner with our family and see a corpse that we put up there. We don't want to see it hanging on the cross. So what they did, in order so they didn't have to look at it too long, the soldiers were sent over and they would break the kneecaps and that would hasten death, right? Okay, so what we know about the crucifixion. Crucifixion killed in a couple of different ways. It killed by shock, by cardiac arrest, or by suffocation. They had to push up to get breath, and when their knees would give out, when they didn't have the strength, they would just suffocate. And the Romans would often break the legs of people who were being crucified after they were done humiliating them. After they had had their fun, they would break their legs, and they would quickly uh, uh, asphyxiate, and they would die quite rapidly. And that's what they wanted to do in this situation. So they broke one thief's legs, they went over and broke the other thief's legs, and as they go up to Jesus, they look at him and they find out that he has already passed away, right? He's already given up his spirit, as the scripture says. But to make sure that he was dead, the soldiers took a spear, and, and it says pierced. They probably kind of slashed, cut open his side, right? And so what this fulfilled was a couple of different things. It fulfilled the scripture that says that no bones would be broken, right, in Jesus during the crucifixion. It also fulfilled a law that the Jews had that during the Passover festival, the sacrificial lamb, you could not break any bones in the sacrificial lamb when you, cruise, when you killed it and sacrificed it. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, and again, we see no bones were broken with fit into the Old Testament law. Now, if he were still alive, there would have only been blood come out of the wound. But since he had passed away, since he was dead, blood and water that would have mixed together because of the cardiac arrest, right? That, that blood and water mixed together came out and that signified that he was dead. Now, I made up this word, cheesify. That's not a Webster's Dictionary word. But what we find is this. I wasn't always raised in church, but I've heard plenty of sermons taken from the crucifixion, and we have dumbed it down and made it so goofy and silly that we forget the enormity of this. Now, what people do is John was not trying to make some kind of theological symbolism. He wasn't trying to be artistic or fancy with the fact that blood and water was coming out. By mentioning the blood and water mixing, he just wanted the reader to know that beyond the shadow of, shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ had died on the cross. Now, what we've done is we've taken that and we kind of dumbed down the cross. 
excuse me for a second, I'm going to get on a soapbox. But we've dumbed down the cross to such a point where people are like, man, Jesus just died of a broken heart. No, Jesus died because he was viciously beaten and nailed to a hunk of wood. That's why Jesus died. And John wanted us to know the facts. So here's the thing. We're coming into a season in North American Christianity where we're taking the most monumental occasion that has ever happened in the history of anything, and we've made it into a rock concert and an Easter egg hunt and a bunch of stupid, petty bullcrap, and we have forgotten the fact that the cross that we've made into something shiny and pretty and cute was drenched in the blood of Jesus. And the last thing that Christianity needs right now is ignorance, marketing ploys, and emotional manipulation. We've had enough and it's not good for us. And it's not good for people to know, uh, for them to not know the truth. We must read the word and let it speak for itself. John was a witness. He saw it and what he said is true. Let's just go on that. So of all the people, that followed Jesus and claimed to be his disciples. One person of all of them, there was the, the ladies that were there with him, but only John was an eyewitness. And verse 35 says that his testimony is true. I was there, I saw the blood and water come out, the man was dead. And the reason why that was such a big deal for him to articulate is because in the next chapter, we're gonna see that he's not dead anymore. But John wanted the scripture to be fulfilled through Christ. That was his main focus. So again, he quotes Zechariah 12, 10, saying that they said they were gonna stare at someone who was pierced. That said this, look, here's the evidence that the fact that this is God. So after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus's body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Then they took Jesus' body, wrapped it in linen cloths with aromatic spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and a new tomb was in the garden. No one had been buried in it yet. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Now, if you remember a long time ago, I can't remember how many months ago, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were rich and powerful Pharisees. They were part of the religious elite. They were the most educated, powerful, influential, affluential man in society at this time. Now, Joseph would have had a voice with Pilate. He would have had a lot of influence. So he went to Pilate and he said, Pilate, may we have the body of Jesus so we can give him a proper burial. And Pilate said, yes. Now, this would have outraged all of Joseph and Nicodemus's contemporaries. This would have been essentially their coming out as Christians thing. And people would have looked down on them. They would have thought they were awful. They would have thought they were uh, heretics and that they were completely lost. And they probably would have given up a lot of social status and, and, and just a lot of face in the community. And so it's an odd turn of events, isn't it? 11 of the 12 closest people to Jesus split when the time got tough, and now two secret followers of Jesus came out after Jesus was killed. And these men had everything to lose. They had everything to lose. 
Now listen, we often in Christianity, we love the poor and impoverished. We love the underdog and we should. This church has given hundreds of thousands of dollars to help feed and clothe and we should take care of the less fortunate, but not at the sake of hating the ones who are fortunate. There is a place at the kingdom of God, at the table of God for all people, not just the thief who had committed crimes, but for the rich, affluential person that has a lot more than we have. And sometimes I think we need to address our envy and jealousy, and we need to stop hating people who have a better life than us. We see that everyone is welcome into the family of God. And so John provides the basic facts of the cross. It says that Jesus was buried in the same field, if you will, at the same hill where the crucifixion took place, but ultimately we don't know where it was. There's three different sites that are debated. That's not the point though. The point is this, Jesus came and he died for his people. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wanted to give their Lord, their savior, the most proper burial that they could. They wanted to honor him. Now listen, imagine John when he's writing this, right? He's writing the Gospel of John, and as he gets to this point, if you're reading it for the first time, you're like, oh my gosh, we lost, the good guy lost. And John's hand is probably shaking as he's getting to the point to where we're gonna talk about next week that he writes down, the fact that Jesus rises. Now, if you're in here, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you've never heard this before, or maybe you've been a Christian your entire life, it's a fair question to ask. Why? Why would Jesus have to go through this? Why would God, right, this perfect God, give his only begotten son to go through this? If you're a parent in here, think, I wouldn't give my daughter to go through this for any of you, right, or all of you. But God gave his only son in the most vicious, excruciating, humiliating, painful way. Why? So if you go back into documents that were written seven centuries before Jesus was born, a prophet named Isaiah talked about why one day we would have to have the Son of God come and die for our sins. And this is what he wrote. He says that he bore our sicknesses. He carried our pain, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That means our rebellion. He was stabbed, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. If you look up iniquities, these are not just sins, but these are sins that are deplorable. These are the things that no one wants to talk about. These are the things that we do that we hope no one ever finds out about. But he knows, and he was crushed for those. He was punished so we could have peace so we could have peace and we were healed because of his wounds. If not in this lifetime, we will be healed for eternity because of his wounds and what he did on the day he was crucified. But why did Jesus Christ have to go to the cross? Why? Because of you and because of me. Who put Jesus on the cross? Technically, it was Roman soldiers and Jewish council, but you know who really put them up there? Me. It was my lust. It was my greed. It was my selfishness. It was the fact that I was self-consumed. It was my rebellion. It was my hate. 
It says that the Lord was punished for the iniquity of us all. I know we come to church. I shouldn't generalize. I know many people come to church because you just want someone to tell you something fluffy, right? Make me feel better before I go and engage my week, right? Tell me that I'm okay. Tell me that God is love and everything's gonna be rosy and that everything's gonna be okay. Now listen, there's a time and the church is there to edify and encourage the body. I understand that, I get it. But there's a reason why Jesus had to come and die. There's a reason that a father had to sacrifice his son in the most brutal way imaginable. And we live in a culture, a Christian culture, that takes church so flippantly and we take sin so flippantly. Oh, God will forgive me. That cost a father his son. It was paid for with blood and flesh and skin. It was paid for with agony and humiliation. But I'm sorry communion takes so long. I'm sorry that you have other things to do. My prayer is that we start to feel the weight and the enormity of what Christ has done. That's why Paul said, should we sin more so grace should abound? Absolutely not. Do you know what that sin cost? Do you know the price that was paid? That while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for me. Corey, why is it a big deal that we talk about sexual sin or cheating on our taxes? Corey, why do you push us to be at church so often or serve in the community? Because it was blood. Because it was pain. Because it was agony and torture and humiliation. And the only begotten son of our creator given for my freedom why is this important? Because a large price was paid for you and I. But we've made it so commercial and we've made it so watered down and we don't want to talk about anything too heavy. There's football games to watch and there's yards to mow and there's lunch to eat, right? And some of you right now just wish I'd shut up so you can go about your day. Father, Father, forgive us that we've become so consumeristic, God. Father, forgive me that I haven't loved you with all of my heart. Forgive me, God, that I have reserved parts of myself for me and I haven't given it to you. Forgive me, God, that I've forgotten that you came from your throne in heaven and you wrapped yourself up in the same kind of flesh and bone that I have, God. And you were beaten for me. 
and that they spat on you and they made fun of you. And you did nothing wrong. It was me. God, forgive us that we've grown so complacent and so comfortable. We're so selfish, God. We've become so busy and we've become so distracted, Lord, that we forgot the very purpose of why we came. We forgot the very purpose. We forgot the means by which we've become free. God, have mercy on us. Pour grace upon grace on us, God, because we're so desperately in need of it. Father, we know that you love us. God, you must love us because there's no way we can ever pay it back. God, thank you for what you've done. Fathers, we honor you just a little bit by taking communion, Lord, when that juice touches our tongue, God. Lord, let us remember that it represents your blood. As that bread touches our lips, God, Lord, let us remember that it represents your body that was just viciously destroyed. God, don't let us forget. Don't let us forget, God, the price that you paid because you love us so much. Regardless of how bad we are, you love us. God, keep your hand on us, Lord, as we meet next week. And we get to just talk about your glorious resurrection, God. We thank you. We love you. We praise you, God. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I know you got things to do. I know you have appointments to keep and you got places to go. I know you got kids that need to be fed. I know all that stuff. I got them too. Why don't you get your communion today? Why don't you sit down for a second? Why don't you just think about what we're doing? Why don't you just think about the cross? Why don't you just think about the fact that God loved you so much we can wait a little bit before we go get lunch. We can make our appointments be a little bit later. Our kids can be patient for a second. Why don't you just take a moment and just really think about it? Father, we love you. God, and I love my brothers and sisters so much. Protect them and keep them safe. And let that blood that you shed cover us. Protect us, God. It's in your name that we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. Thank you.